This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Wrangler. Whether you ride a bike, a bronc, or a skateboard, Wrangler jeans are for you. Classic or modern styles, a range of fits, all price points, vintage re-releases. Wrangler has something for everyone. Visit Wrangler.com and check out their selection of jeans, shirts, pants, and outwear for men and women. Again, Wrangler.com. Wrangler, denim made for the modern world. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, if you're like most boys, you probably went through a karate phase as a kid. When I went through my phase as a five and six-year-old, I demanded that my family call me Daniel-san, because Karate Kid is my favorite movie. I was also going through a Top Gun, Goonies, and Ghostbusters phase at the same time, so the full name was Daniel-san, Mikey, Maverick, Peter Vickman. My family did not comply with that demand. Anyways, if you went through a karate phase, you got one man to thank for that, and it's Bruce Lee. My guest will show us today, Bruce Lee nearly single-handedly popularized martial arts in America thanks to his breakout Hong Kong Kung Fu movies of the early 1970s. My guest's name is Matthew Pauly, and he's the author of a new definitive biography of Bruce Lee called Bruce Lee, A Life. Today on the show, Matthew and I explore the creation of the legend that is Bruce Lee, starting with his unique family history that had him straddling Eastern and Western cultures his entire life. Matthew then gives us vignettes into Lee's early life that shows his fire, scrappiness, and love of martial arts, including his rise as a child star in Hong Kong and his love of street brawling. We then discuss how Lee started formal training in Kung Fu as a teenager and how his ambition caused him to bump heads with his teachers. And Matthew then shares how coming to America helped Lee refine and reinvent his martial arts practice, how Lee got his big break in Hollywood, and how he ended up teaching Kung Fu to movie stars like Steve McQueen and James Coburn. Along the way, Matthew shares Lee's relentless fitness routine, talks about Lee's personal library of over 2,500 books that included a lot of philosophy and psychology. We enter a conversation discussing Lee's legacy and how he changed not only cinema, but our idea of manhood in America. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Bruce Lee. Matthew Pauly, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Brett. So you got a, a new biography out about a, a man who I would say had a, like a, just a huge impact on not only American cinema, but also Asian cinema. And because it's the Art of Manliness podcast, I would say he had a huge influence on American masculinity as well as Chinese masculinity. And I'm talking, of course, about Bruce Lee. Like every other red-blooded American boy, I went through a karate phase when I was in elementary school, watched the kung fu movies Bruce Lee did during the, the 60s and 70s. So he's always you know, been a big part of my idea of like what it means to be a man, right? The guy who's just can kick butt no matter whatever situation he finds himself in. And so about a year ago, I was like, okay, I want to do a podcast about Bruce Lee. Let's go look for some Bruce Lee biographies. There's got to be a ton out there because this guy, of course, you know, he changed cinema as we know it. But I was surprised by the dearth of biographies about Bruce Lee. Uh, what do you think is going on there? Why hasn't there been that much written about his life and his career? I was shocked, at, uh, shocked as well because Bruce Lee was one of my childhood heroes and I'd read all the martial arts magazines, but I hadn't really looked at the biographies. And when I researched it, there was only one still in print. It was written 25 years ago, and it was pretty poorly researched. And that's one of the reasons I felt compelled to write the book. I think the reasons are twofold. One, I think it matters that he's Asian American. We know pretty much any white guy does anything gets at least half a dozen biographies. You know, Steve McQueen has six. James Dean has nearly a dozen. Also, that Bruce was into Kung Fu, which I think is sort of looked down as lowbrow. If he had been a painter, I think he would have gotten at least a couple good ones. And so I think those two factors meant that Bruce, in a weird way, got overlooked. So everyone knows who he is, but no one thought he was a serious enough figure to be treated with the kind of respect you need to have for someone to write a five or 600 page biography. All right, so you felt you saw there was a need, and you're like, I'm the guy, I'm the guy to fill this need. And I'm glad you did, because the biography is fantastic. I couldn't put it down. Let's talk about Lee, because as you said, he's Asian American. A lot of people think he's you know, just Asian. He's just from, from Hong Kong. But he's got an interesting background. One of the, the things he struggled with, you say struggle, throughout his entire life is he straddled two worlds. He straddled East, and he straddled the West. And 
that straddling, like it started even before Bruce Lee was born. Tell us about his family history and how it, it shaped or may have you know, contributed to how he perceived the world and how he experienced the world. Yeah, so one of the revelations that I uh, came up with while in my research was that his background was far more diverse than we had previously known. Everyone who was into Bruce Lee knew he was part Eurasian, that he had a European ancestry, but they thought his uh, grandfather was German Catholic. And what I discovered was actually his great-grandfather was Dutch-Jewish, a man named Moses Hertog Bozeman, who in the 1850s traveled to Hong Kong, bought a Chinese concubine, and had six kids. And those kids became the richest men in Hong Kong. And Bruce Lee's grandfather, whose name was Hokom Tong, was so wealthy, he had 13 concubines, and then had an affair with a British woman. And that was Bruce Lee's grandmother. Uh, and so Bruce Lee was part Han Chinese, part Dutch Jewish, and part uh, English. And so growing up, well, first he was born in America, which a lot of people don't know. His father was an actor who was on tour. He returned to Hong Kong when he was about five months old. And in Hong Kong, he, was he faced discrimination because he wasn't pure Chinese. And then when he returned to America uh, when he was 18, he faced discrimination because he was Asian, not white. And so his whole life was spent sort of being proud of who he was in context in which he was discriminated against. And I think that's part of the reason he was so interested and so successful at bridging the divide between the East and West. So a lot of people don't know about this about Bruce Lee is that his acting career began way before he did any of his Kung Fu movies. He was, a, he was actually a child star in Hong Kong, when I think when he was like four or five or six, right? Yeah. So uh, his father was an actor. So he came from an entertainment family. The first film he showed up in, he was two months old. It was filmed in San Francisco, where he was born, uh, and he just appeared on screen. They actually, it was a cross-dressing performance. He he played a little girl, but it, excuse me, his acting career began in earnest when he was um, six years old, and he appeared in nearly twenty films as a child actor up until he was eighteen. And what's interesting is none of those were kung fu movies. Right. Yeah, he was known as he he was known as the Little Dragon. That's right. That was his stage name, Lee Shaolong is how they pronounce it in Mandarin. Uh, and so it's an appropriate one because, of course, Bruce was a, a fire element. He, he had a short temper. He was very fiery. He was hyperactive. But yes, he was called the Little Dragon, and that became sort of his symbol and why later he, he wanted to uh, name his movies Enter the Dragon because that's who he was. That's who he was. Well, yeah, you mentioned he's fiery because I thought that was another interesting aspect of Bruce Lee because this is a guy, Hong Kong, you know, not technically part of China. It was still part of uh, under British rule, but, you know, Chinese, where the culture is typically conformist, the emphasis on community. But you have Bruce Lee here who was very individualistic, more than his other, than his siblings, more than his dad. Where did he get that sense of individualism despite growing up in a culture that kind of shunned it? Well, some, uh, some aspects of his personality, I think, are just a mystery. Uh, uh, each child gets born with their own soul. And I think Bruce, from the very start, was highly individualistic. But there are certain things that um, influenced him when he was young. One thing I thought was fascinating is that he nearly died during the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong during World War II. There was a cholera epidemic, and he had to fight from the very earliest years of his life just to live. And in that kind of fighter spirit, I think, infused him for the rest of his life. Another factor I think was crucial and was underplayed in most Bruce Lee biographies because the family is embarrassed about it, but his father became an opium addict. Uh, it was very common for Chinese opera stars, which his father was, to smoke opium. But in his, Bruce's teenage years, the addiction sort of got its claws into his father and I think that affected Bruce greatly and caused him to distrust authority on a certain level because he didn't trust his father or he had complicated feelings towards his father. And so Bruce, from a very early age, uh, refused to accept anyone imposing authority on him. There's a, one of the stories, the revelations in the book, is that 
he was kicked out of this prestigious parochial school he went to called LaSalle. And for years, no one would admit what really happened. But I ended up talking to some of his classmates in Hong Kong. And what turned out that happened was first, he pulled a knife on his PE teacher who had struck him. Uh, and then later, he uh, did a prank on one of his classmates that uh, upset everyone, and he got kicked out of school. And so, he really was a kind of hyperactive, troublemaking kid in the back of a class who couldn't sit still and never did his studies, was considered a terrible student, and his true love was street fighting. And so, uh, from a very early age, he was a pugnacious, rebellious kid. Yeah, the street fighting thing was interesting because you know Bruce Lee's dad was an actor, uh, he grew up in a relatively affluent, he had an affluent uh, life growing up. You know, the family had servants. He was able to go to these prestigious parochial schools. But the guy loved to fight. And I mean, he, he somehow he always ended up the leader of these gangs, and which is interesting because you, you typically think, okay, if you're poor and you come from a rough neighborhood, okay, you end up in a gang because it's supplying you some sort of sense of security that you're not getting at home. We, that makes sense to us. But it's like, why would this middle upper middle class kid start street gangs so he could just beat the crap out of people <laughs> yes uh, that was fascinating about him uh one that he came from an affluent background that's sort of downplayed um, his story they like to do a kind of rags to riches and that's true when he got to america because his parents cut him off so in america he started at the very bottom but in in hong kong he was at the top his his mother's family was one of the richest in hong kong his father did very well in real estate and was also a famous actor. And so he had, a, he had a very affluent upbringing. I think one of the things I had to get my head around is when we think of Hong Kong, we think of modern Hong Kong, which is basically this high-end shopping mall. But when Bruce was growing up in the 1950s, it was basically a refugee camp run by British businessmen. And there were millions and millions of Chinese refugees fleeing the war the revolution in China. And so the streets were an actually dangerous place to be. There were triads, there were gangs, the police were extremely corrupt. And so uh, there was a lot of sort of gang activity. And I think Bruce in his middle-class way was imitating what was going on around him. Yeah. The thing that I kind of, I got a chuckle out of uh, talking about some of these gangs made up of 10-year-olds and they had knuckle dusters, and, like <laughs> switchblade knives and chains. And I'm like, Jeez Louise. I, I mean, like my son is seven. I couldn't imagine him <laughs> keeping a, a pair of brass knuckles in his pocket just in case he uh, gets in a fight at school. Exactly. My son's three. And, uh, you know, the idea that he has a razor blade stuck in his shoe to use in a fight, you know, <laughs> right. it's a it's that completely different era. And I often thought of sort of West Side Story. You know, there's they would the Jets and the Sharks, they would go meet and, and Bruce would go fight with the uh, British kids across town because there was this Chinese British rivalry in the colony. Yeah. There, yeah, there was a lot of that going on the other. So let's talk about his fighting during his, his, uh, this, his street gang years. Like at this point, he wasn't really doing Kung Fu or any type of martial art. He was just, just punching and kicking and doing whatever. There was no method, right? Yeah. So, so Bruce Lee, uh, just was a tough kid. Uh, and one of the other things it's hard, it I, was hard to get my head around is you think of Hong Kong and you just think, you know, Kung Fu, everywhere. But at the time, Kung Fu was sort of a, a low, uh, not very respected thing. Um, and so it wasn't until he met a, a classmate or a friend of his named William Chung, who was much better as a fighter than Bruce. And this drove Bruce crazy because he had to, he was a perfectionist and he always wanted to be the best and he wanted to be a leader. And so this idea that there was this older, bigger kid who was better than him uh, kind of drove him crazy, and he wanted to figure out how to be better than William Chung. And it turned out William Chung studied uh, Wing Chun Kung Fu under the tutelage of the master Ip Man, who's now famous for all of these movies from Hong Kong. And so Bruce only took up Wing Chun to be a better street fighter and to be better than this this kid, William Chung, who it drove him crazy, was a better fighter than him. So when, this was about when he was 15 years old, right? Yeah, 15, 16, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about Kung Fu because that's it's sort of, uh, I think it's become a catch-all phrase for, I mean, at the time, it seemed like it was used as a catch-all phrase for pretty much any martial art. But you, you see this when Bruce Lee comes to America and he's teaching people. Like, people used karate uh, interchangeably with Kung Fu. 
So, but there is a difference. So like what, what exactly, what is Kung Fu? What separates it from say Taekwondo or karate? And then after that specifically, what was Wing Chun and it, how, how is it different from other types of Kung Fu? Right. So the way I would think about it is the martial arts describes all sort of, of fighting styles that have a, a formalized structure where they teach you certain ways to punch or to kick or to throw or to grapple. So boxing can be a form of uh, martial arts. And then each nation had its own particular type. So Taekwondo is a Korean art form. Karate is a Japanese art form. And Kung Fu was the term the Chinese use for all their different types of martial arts. And then within Kung Fu, then there's the specific styles. And so China has hundreds. You could go on for an entire podcast discussing them. Wing Chun was one style of Southern Kung Fu. And it was actually kind of small and obscure. There were only a couple masters in Hong Kong. There were styles like Hung Gar who had a far bigger following. But Wing Chun became uh, popular in Hong Kong because its students were particularly good at challenge fights. And they would go out and challenge stylists from other Kung Fu styles, and they would win a lot of these fights. And so if you were a brash street fighter like Bruce Lee and you wanted to be better at it, Wing Chun was the style that you would you would study. Right. And, and Wing Chun uh, was supposedly, according to legend, started by a female monk, right? That's right. So every uh, Chinese Kung Fu style has a legendary story uh, where its origins came from that is almost always highly fictionalized, but it tells you a little bit about what they think the style is about. And so Wing Chun is unique because its founder was supposedly a Shaolin nun who had developed the style by making it better for women in the sense of close in contact, low kicks, um, and focusing on if you were someone who was smaller than your opponent. And since Bruce Lee actually grew up uh, smaller and frailer than his siblings and his classmates because he nearly died in that cholera epidemic, it was sort of the perfect style for him. So um, I imagine, you know, because Kung Fu was looked down upon, he had to keep this as a, as a secret. He didn't tell his parents he was taking Kung Fu lessons. That's right. The, his parents throughout his life were trying to figure out ways to get him on the straight and narrow. It was one of those situations I think is familiar to a lot of families. His older brother, Peter, was the studious A student who his father favored. And Bruce was the young, rebellious troublemaker. Uh, so Peter was the one they were saving tuition money for, and Bruce is the one they were saving bail money for. And I, I thought uh, it was kind of fascinating that Bruce, even though he was rebellious, there was a certain base level of respect he had for his parents. Um, he would he would hide things from him that he knew would get him in trouble. And so he never told them that he was studying Wing Chun until they finally found out, and then they blew up, and there was a huge argument about it. And Bruce said to his father, it kind of hurt. Like, I'm not a good student, but I'm good at fighting, and I'm going to use fighting to make a name for himself. Of course, at 16, he couldn't realize that he would eventually become the most famous unarmed martial artist to ever live. But uh, even from an early age, he had this sort of idea that this is the one thing I'm good at. And he spent the rest of his life figuring out a way to uh, fit that into society. Well, you know, we talked about Bruce had a, he had a natural disposition to being individualistic. Kung Fu and Chinese martial arts, big on tradition, big on structure, big on rigidity. Because, you know, he's sort of it derived out of Confucianism where there's ritual and you do things a certain way because that's just the way you do them. Did Bruce Lee bristle at his Kung Fu instruction? Like, did, were there already like things like he would just pop off to his instructor? Or was he, did he kind of respect the process? Well, he wasn't respectful in this sense. Uh, one of the first questions he asked his, his teacher, uh, Ip Man was his master and Wang Shunlong was the guy who taught the daily sort of beginners class that Bruce was in. The first thing he asked him was, how long will it be until I'm better than you? So, I, and his, his instructor in recalling this has this great phrase, he said, he asked too much. Uh, and you can just imagine, you know, you're teaching this punk sort of teenage kid martial arts and he doesn't know anything. And the first thing he wants to know is how long before I can kick your butt. And so, Bruce was pugnacious from a very early age. 
But I think at the the beginning stages, he knew so little um, that he was willing to kind of learn the pattern. He was willing to learn what they taught him. But very quickly, within a few years, he started to branch out and bring other elements into Kung Fu besides just Wing Chun. And did did it make him a better fighter, like a better street fighter? Like he started winning more of these duels. Like I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that that went on in in Hong Kong where people would just be like, I challenge you to a, a fight. And it's like you'd have to do it. Uh, did, did that help him at all? Yeah, that's a fascinating aspect of uh, Hong Kong culture at that time. It doesn't go on anymore, but they would go on to the rooftops because there's so little space. That was the only place they could get privacy. It did make him a better fighter, and it, it, it didn't calm him down at first. I mean, what he would do is go into the streets and go sort of... He, one of his stunts was he would wear really traditional clothing in westernized Hong Kong, and if someone looked at him funny or said something about the clothing he was on, he was wearing, he would start a fight with them. And that's what eventually got him kicked out of Hong Kong, is he started so many street fights with sort of random strangers that uh, the police came around to his mother and said, if you don't calm him down, we're going to throw him in jail. All right, so this is a man, a young guy who had a chip on his shoulder, man to be reckoned with. So yeah, he finally gets kicked out of Hong Kong. His parents were fed up with him. He got kicked out of school doing Kung Fu, and they finally decided you're out, you're going back to America, you're going to Washington. So uh, why, why Washington? Why, why did he end up there? And, and what happened to Lee? Did, it, did that have an effect on him? Did it turn him around at all? Yeah, it had a profound effect. The reason he went to Washington was because his father had a friend who owned a restaurant in Seattle. And so the Chinese community, it's always a friend of a friend because they're living in uh, America, where they're being discriminated against. So like all immigrant communities, they band together for mutual support. So Bruce was sent to Ruby Chow's restaurant in Seattle, and he was expecting to be treated like an honored guest. <laughs> but his father was so angry and felt he'd been spoiled growing up because his father grew up very poor. And he felt like he had this kind of you know rich son who didn't respect anything. So he told Ruby Chows to treat him like, uh, you know, a wash boy, a bus boy. And so Bruce got stuck in a closet, essentially a converted closet under the staircase and was forced to do the most menial tasks. And as, as we mentioned earlier, he was a childhood actor. He never held a real job. He went to nice schools. He had an affluent background. He had servants in the household. He never had to wash a dish in his life. So he's 18. He's all alone. He's in America and he's washing ditch dishes and he's thinking, this could be my future. Like I may never get out of this restaurant. And so that experience worked. He, he, he literally was scared straight and it focused his ambition and competitiveness to dream of what he could do to make it in America. And in many ways, Bruce's story is the classic immigrant success story of a young boy who had a troubled past who comes to America and finds his way here. So yeah, that moment he decides he's going to become a doctor or a farmer, <laughs> yeah. like which is, <laughs> you know, he didn't do well in school and he's like writing, I think he wrote his brother or a friend back home in Hong Kong. He's like, here's my plan, what I need to do to, exactly what I need to do to become a, a doctor in five years. I mean, it was, <laughs> That's right. it, was, it was really funny. But so he gets, he goes back to school, he gets pretty studious he buckles down. Does he continue to practice Kung Fu or do any street fighting or did he leave that behind him for a bit? Well, one of the things we, we hadn't talked about is that he was also a dancer um, and he was the oh, yes. cha-cha champion of Hong Kong. So the first thing he did in America was he taught dance to other overseas Chinese. And so that was his first real job other than washing dishes in the restaurant for his room and board. But at every dance performance, he would sort of, in the middle of it, show off some of his kung fu. And some of the, uh, the Chinese community, the students who were learning dance from him, were amazed by his incredible Wing Chun talent. They hadn't seen anything like that before. And so he quickly realized that he could make at least a part-time job out of teaching kung fu. And he, he quickly gathered a group of sort of street toughs from the school he was at, at Edison Technical High School in uh, Seattle. And his first student was Jesse Glover, an African-American. And so Bruce Lee was the first person to ever have, uh, uh, the first Kung Fu instructor to ever teach a black student. 
which was a real racial breakthrough because at the time the Chinese community and the black community were at, at odds. And he slowly expanded from Jesse to the point where he had maybe a dozen uh, young students learning uh, Wing Chun Kung Fu from him. And once he got to college, his dream was to become the Ray Kroc of Kung Fu. That is the guy who founded McDonald's. He was going to franchise uh, Kung Fu schools across the country. So he had this very entrepreneurial spirit from a very early age. Yeah, that bit about him being the cha-cha king was interesting because like, the people that he danced with would say that Bruce could just look at one move and immediately put it into action, which you know, goes to show the guy probably had an innate talent for you know, body awareness, space awareness. Like he, he had that talent. He knew how to move his body. Unlike me, I'm very clunky and I would step on people's toes if they were to teach me a cha-cha move. That's right. You know, Bruce Lee's image is someone who, who became this incredible martial artist through sheer force of will. And that's partly true. He trained tremendously. He was absolutely obsessed about the martial arts. But he also had a certain sort of genius. And that was what it, I think his girlfriend in college, uh, Amy Sambo, said that he was a kinetic genius. He could look at a move and just figure out how to do it immediately. He could do, she, you know, she was a ballet dancer and he could do a pirouette within a couple tries. And so that was Bruce's great gift is that anything physical, he was able to do quite quickly. And that gave him this tremendous advantage in the martial arts, particularly learning new martial arts. I'm sure we'll get to, but one of the things that Bruce is known for is incorporating a lot of different styles into one. And only someone who's really gifted at learning uh, other styles quickly could have done that. Yeah, that, I thought that was an interesting point you talk about when he starts teaching Kung Fu to uh, some of his fellow students at the technical high school. It, it wasn't really like it was very informal. Like they'd meet in a parking lot or in a park somewhere. And it wasn't really the way you described it, it wasn't really Bruce teaching them, like as you know, at the front, like I'm the teacher, bow to me, respect me. It was more like Bruce was actually, he was the one, he was using them to refine his martial art. And these guys that were along, you know, that were there, like they learned some things along the way. But really, Bruce was using his this sort of you know, very informal kung fu school that he had as an incubator for himself to refine and sort of start melding different types of martial arts. Because you know Jesse Glover, I think he had a boxing background, correct? That's right. Yeah. So and yeah, go ahead. Yes. Talk about that. So yeah, Jesse Jesse was boxing and judo, um, and uh, a lot of these guys were street toughs, and so there were a number of amateur boxers. They did judo. And what's interesting about Bruce is he adapted to the environments that he was in. And so I I joke that if he had gone to Russia, he would have been the best at Russian martial arts. But he went to America where boxing and wrestling were the two main forms of kind of sports combat. And so he quickly started to pick up things that his students knew. And that's one of his great gifts is he, he didn't come and just say, I have the perfect system let me just give it to you. He would look at what they did and go, oh, that's that's nice. I like that. Why don't I figure out a way to work that in? And so one of the complaints of his students were, is he teaching us or is he actually just using us to make himself better? And he was, he was in part doing both. And one of the things I always try to remember when I was writing about Bruce is at this point in time, he's 19 years old. And when I was 19, I was pretty self-centered and only interested in my own development. And I think Bruce was was like that in his early years. So he was more like the gang leader. And he had this kind of gang of Kung Fu students slash followers. And they would meet together and he would show them some moves, but then get them to spar together so he could make himself better. And if, in, the, in those early years, his primary goal was he wanted to be the best martial artist in the world. And they were there to help him as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, that was another common theme throughout Bruce Lee's life, like these big ambitious goals he set for himself it's like i'm going to be the best in the entire world and later on we get to this too he's like he, he set a goal i'm going to be bigger than steve mcqueen uh, <laughs> i mean i mean the guy just had he had ambition yeah i think that's one of the things i sort of admire most about bruce is that you know most people get to america from another country and they're just thinking how can i survive 
You know, you're, there's all these stories of people who are doctors in Iran and they're driving a cab and then their dream is that their children will do better. Bruce didn't, Bruce didn't want to wait around. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't going to wait for the next generation to make it in America. As soon as he landed, he was like, I'm going to be the biggest Kung Fu instructor in America. I'm going to have schools all over the country and I'm going to be the best martial artist the world's ever seen. And then, as, as you mentioned, when he got a break in Hollywood, he didn't just think, I'd like to be a working actor who gets parts here and there. He was like, I want to be the biggest movie star in the entire world as an Asian guy in 1960s Hollywood, which was completely impossible because Asians barely could get any parts on TV, let alone a starring role in a movie. So uh, Bruce had an innate sort of self-confidence that's in a way staggering when you look back at it right so these in these kung fu schools like he had one going on that's where he met his wife linda correct that's right so he had given a lecture at the high school where linda attended and she had noticed him because he's a handsome guy he he was a flashy dresser and she thought he was kind of big city she he reminded her of the star of uh, west side story and so because she immediately had a crush on him, she went and found the Kung Fu school where he was teaching at the time and became one of his students. And so she was really sort of a disciple of Bruce's before they started dating. Started. Well, yeah, there's another aspect, and we'll, we'll get into this too. Like Bruce, he was a ladies' man. Like he was, and, and what was surprising at the time, you know, during the 50s and 60s, this is a time when there was, uh, you know, interracial dating or relationships was looked down upon like it didn't matter. Like when, all women, what didn't went out of there were you know, from Hong Kong or from Washington. Like there was something about him that that was attractive. That's right. Bruce had game. You know, he was he, he, he was a he was a child actor. He had a tremendous amount of charisma. And so while his brother was the introverted, studious one, Bruce was the life of the party. He was the extroverted troublemaker. And I think that a lot of charisma is a sense of danger. Uh, and he carried that with him. And that kind of frisian excited, uh, you know, the co-eds around. And so he never had a problem getting a date. He always dated beautiful sort of flashy girls until he met Linda. who She was much more serious and thoughtful than the typical girls that he dated. But yeah, he, had a, he, he was a ladies' man. He really was. So he starts these kung fu schools. Uh, he, in the process, too, he also marries Linda because she gets pregnant. And that was a big ordeal because her family was dead set against her being married to an Asian American. But, you know, Linda says, no, I, I love him. We're going to do this. And, I, and that's the other thing. Like Linda really seemed to believe, you know, as you said, she was a disciple before he, she was Bruce's wife. Like she really believed in what Bruce was doing. I think that's the most crucial thing to their relationship is and what, allowed Bruce to have the confidence to succeed during periods when everyone else was telling him it wasn't going to work, was that Linda was his rock, and she believed in him in this almost religious way. I mean, she just worshipped him, and she thought she was lucky to get him. And it's in, and that's fascinating because, as you mentioned, her parents were dead set against it. People forget, but interracial marriage was sort of the gay marriage of that period, uh, it was illegal in 17 states in America for uh, members of two different races to marry. And it wasn't until 1967 that the Supreme Court uh, outlawed what they called anti-miscegenation laws. And so her family, she, Linda knew her mother wouldn't approve, and she kept Bruce Lee a secret for nearly a year. And it wasn't until she got pregnant they tried to elope and then got caught. Uh, and then there was this big family powwow where they tried to uh, convince her not to marry this Chinese guy. And so, but she was very adamant and she loved him absolutely. And I think that was the key to his success later in life is that he had this sort of rock of support and admiration and belief. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Jeremy here, producer for the AOM podcast. Support for today's show comes from Starbucks Double Shot, a chilled coffee energy drink that gives you the gusto to go from point A to point done. As a husband, dad to two young kids and podcast producer, I need a lot of energy to not just survive my day, but really own it and be present in all aspects. 
While I'm usually a hot coffee guy, on those blazing summer days, who wants a steaming hot beverage? Plus, I don't like those standard energy drinks that are loaded with sugar, always have weird off-putting flavors. No thank you. So what's a busy guy to do? Enter the Starbucks Double Shot. Starts with bold Starbucks coffee and is blended with milk for a smooth, creamy, delicious flavor. It's then enhanced with ginseng, guarana, and B vitamins to give you that little extra oomph. Starbucks Double Shot comes in six delicious flavors, mocha, vanilla, hazelnut, white chocolate, Mexican, mocha, and coffee, with my personal favorite being that last one. Starbucks Double Shot. It's energy to do things you actually do. Find it in your local convenience store. Thank you, Jeremy. And this episode's also brought to you in part by Saks Underwear. Saks Underwear is the underwear of the future, and they recently released their new Undercover Collection. The Undercover Collection from Saks Underwear is made of super soft cotton modal, keeping you cool no matter what. Fabric's breathable, moisture-wicking, and resistant to odor. There's nothing else out there like it. And like all Saks Underwear, the Undercover Collection features their revolutionary ballpark powder which is designed with our anatomy in mind. It keeps everything in place with internal mesh panels. No more having to adjust yourself. No more sticking, no more chafing. It's fantastic, especially in the hot, humid summer. Undercover is fantastic. They feel great. Also, if you're not a fan of the boxer brief, they also have whitey tidy version, brief version. So if you get, that's your thing, the Undercover Collection has that for you as well. Saks is offering Art of Manly's listeners a great limited time deal. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use the code AOM at checkout. Again, that's AOM for Art of Manliness. So go to Saks Underwear, that's S-A-X-X, underwear.com, Saks with two X's. Use promo code AOM at checkout, get $5 off plus free shipping. Go check it out today. And now back to the show. And, and not only was he a, a Chinese guy, he was a Chinese guy trying to be a Kung Fu teacher. And they're like, what is Kung Fu? And yeah. who would, you know, it's like, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a Instagram influencer. Like what in the world, how are you going to support my daughter being an Instagram influencer? That's, that's right. The, uh, I mean, we forget about it, but no one in America outside of Chinatowns knew the word Kung Fu. The Chinese community was very small and very isolated and they didn't interact that much with the white community. And so almost nothing was known about Chinese culture in America in the 1960s. And so when they asked him, you know, one of the one of Linda's uncles asked him, uh, well, what are you going to do to support uh, my niece? And he said, I teach Kung Fu. And the guy goes, what? <laughs> like, you know, he might as, it's same thing. Inst- Instagram, at least people knew it was like, you know, I'm going to teach her blah, blah, blah. You know, he just like made up a word. Right. Um, so they thought not only had she gotten pregnant by a, a non-white guy, but she was going to marry somebody who was going to be destitute his whole life. All right. So he, he tries to do this Kung Fu thing. He starts opening up different schools and it didn't really pan out because he was spread himself too thin. He couldn't pay the rent. How did he get back into the acting game in America? Because as you said at the time, during this time, there weren't a lot of parts for Asians. If Hollywood was going to cast, they needed an Asian. They typically take a white person and paint their skin and make their eyes look, you know, you know, do makeup so they look Chinese. They wouldn't actually hire an Asian. So how did Bruce, how did Bruce get back into it? And where, how did he think like, yeah, this is going to be the thing. I'm going to drop teaching Kung Fu and I'm going to become a Kung Fu star. So it's a, an amazing story. Like one of the things I think to understand Bruce is to understand that he was an actor first and foremost. And so even when he was teaching Kung Fu, his favorite thing to do was to go around giving Kung Fu demonstrations uh, and he gave them all up and down the West Coast. And he, he was, that was his great skill, is to get on stage, do kung fu. And I, I felt it was a, like a stand-up comic, sort of working his routine and creating a persona. And so during these years when he was teaching kung fu, he was also really creating this persona of Bruce Lee, the kung fu master. And, and inevitably... Uh, someone noticed. And when he was in Long Beach in 1964 at a karate tournament, um, he was noticed by someone who recommended him to a TV producer by the name of William Dozier. And William Dozier wanted to do a Charlie Chan TV series. And actually, the radical idea he had was to actually cast an Asian for an Asian part (laughs) instead of doing the uh, yellow face of casting a white actor and putting him in makeup. And so he offered Bruce Lee the lead role in an American TV show, which would have been unheard of. It would have been a complete and total breakthrough. 
And so Bruce was immediately on board with his, you know, tremendous self-confidence. He believed that, you know, right out of the gate, he was going to be a TV star. And I think it's an interesting point to make. He was an actor first, but again, like he, I think some people dismiss Bruce Lee as a martial artist thinking, well, he was just an actor, but like the guy was actually, he had, he had chops. Like he, he, he was impressive. He, he, he was doing the one inch punch that he's made famous for where he just, you know, put his fist an inch away from someone's chest and then just knock him over a chair. Uh, he could do the fingertip push-up, like the one finger push-up. Like he was, he was an actual, like he could fight. And uh, I, that was another big takeaway I got from this. Like he wasn't just all, it wasn't just an act, like he was the real deal. That's right. And that's important to state, which is when I make the argument he was an actor first, I'm speaking kind of chronologically and psychologically, but he, he was the real deal. He was a genius. Um, and that's why I think he's irreplaceable. Because you have martial artists, great martial artists who try to be actors, movie stars, but they're not very good actors. And you have actors who try to be sort of action stars, but they're not very good martial artists. And Bruce Lee is one of the few people to be a genius at both. He was a very good actor, and he was an unbelievable martial artist. And those two abilities that he merged or why we still remember him. So, as you said, he got on the radar in Hollywood, and that didn't work out, but he did get a, he landed a part uh, with a TV show, The Green Hornet, where he played Cato. How did that role change the trajectory of his career in Hollywood? Uh, so, Dozier tried to get Charlie Chan's number one son off the ground with Bruce Lee as a star, but it was immediately rejected by TV executives because no one in 1966 thought the American public would accept a Chinese hero on TV. And so Dozier pitched them his second show, which was The Green Hornet. So Bruce got knocked down from being the star of the show to being the sidekick, playing Cato, to The Green Hornet, played by Van Williams. And at first, Bruce was quite upset that he had been demoted. But Dozier convinced him that this was a real opportunity to uh, show the American public real Asian martial arts, which they'd never seen before. That's another thing that's hard to remember. There had never been a TV show with a character who was doing actual Asian martial arts on it. It was all the kind of John Wayne punch thing that you saw on TV. And so Bruce had this chance to show off what he could do. And he quickly became more popular than the main character. He got more fan letters, and he was really embraced by the very small martial arts community of the time because one of their own had finally gotten on TV to show off their stuff. And so this set Bruce on the path of becoming a martial arts star uh, by getting this first role of playing Kato, who was the, the karate master of the Green Hornet. Right. The Green Hornet it, it ended, didn't do too well. It had that really bad crossover with Batman and Robin, mm. which, which did. When, I, when, you, when you were describing, I started laughing because I was like, that sounds like just a, a terrible combination there. But, anyways, I mean, so yeah, as we were talking about, so he, he starts acting's on the radar again. And as you're saying, he's the real deal. Bruce had this innate talent for physicality, but he amplified it or magnified it by training all the time. And this was another sort of innovation Bruce Lee made was um, he was big on personal fitness, physical fitness. And at the time in the 60s, you know, lifting weights, taking supplements, like that's, it's today, it's very natural. Of course, everyone, it's very mainstream. But at the time, like only weirdos did that sort of stuff. But Bruce, very early on, embraced physical training. Tell us about his, his, uh, his physical training and uh, his physical fitness routines. Yeah, so that's an important point, which is even the NFL didn't allow its players to lift weights in the 1960s because they believed it was damaging to an athlete. That's how sort of different the attitudes were at that period. And martial artists never did anything except do their martial arts. And he was the first person to realize that to be the best martial artist possible, you also had to be strong and fast and in shape. And the best way to do that was to specialize your training for that. And so he, he looked at it and he looked around at what was available. And so from boxing, he picked up road work. So in the mornings, he would go out for like three or four mile runs. And he also jumped rope. But then he also was, a, as you said, early into the weightlifting craze. So he had all the you know, muscle and fitness magazines of that period. And he would buy the supplements that they were selling for his diet. And he also had, he had friends give him sort of weight lifting equipment. 
So every couple days he would go through a weightlifting routine and jog and run. And so he trained like a modern athlete long before modern athletes were training like that. And he was there in that area. He was extremely innovative. Yeah. And he got shredded. I mean, that, that's how he had that, you know, when he, you know, he, he fought with his shirt off in the movies and he's just, he looks jacked and shredded. That's right. He, I think he recognized two things. One, what was interesting about Bruce is he realized very quickly that for the martial arts, you don't want to be too bulky. So all of those weightlifting magazines at the time were about size. You wanted to have the huge puffy muscles and he realized that those slow you down and speed is what kills when you're fighting that a quick punch is much more important than a heavy arm throwing it. And so Bruce wanted to be sleek and slim and shredded and ripped. And then of course he was also acting at the time. And I think he recognized that for years, for decades, centuries, even Chinese males were portrayed as kind of weaklings and that, if he wanted to create this image of a masculine, super-powered, super-heroic Chinese male character on screen, changing his musculature would be one way to do that in such a visual medium. And so being completely ripped and shredded would convey this power on screen. And so he had two goals. And I think during this period, you can see him pursuing both goals at the same time. He still wants to be the greatest martial artist on earth, and he also wants to be the biggest star on earth. And whenever he could find a way to do both at the same time, he was happy. Right. And another component to his self-improvement during this time, not only was he training hard and exercising, he also, a lot of people don't know this about Bruce Lee, he was a voracious reader. Like he was actually, and he, he didn't just read like dumb books. Like he was reading St. Augustine. He was reading Plato. He was reading, he was reading pretty heavy philosophical works. What, what was going on there with uh, Bruce's reading? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why he's endured is because he wasn't just a meathead. Um, he just wasn't like some boxer guy who can pound people. He studied philosophy at the University of Washington. He was a college student. He fell in love with philosophy and psychology and also some of the self-help books of that era. In his library, he had over 2,500 books which we know he read very intensely because he has margin notes everywhere. And he would write down quotes that he liked from the various authors. And he read voraciously a lot about martial arts, but also Descartes, Hume, Aquinas on the Western side. And then he would read Lao Tzu, Zhuangzi, Confucius, Mencius, and the various Chinese scholars and philosophers. And so he was thinking about everything he was doing physically. And he was an amazing way able to kind of combine the two that most people don't. You either have the eggheads or the meatheads and Bruce was both. So what I thought was interesting too, is that his, his reading influenced his martial arts and, and that's, this is like, it allowed him to start creating what became known as Jeet Kwon Do, which was Lee's version. And he incorporated a lot of what he read to develop. So like, how, how would you describe Jeet Kwon Do? So it seems like there is it's it's a, more of a philosophy towards martial arts and not necessarily uh, a system of movements. Is that would that be right? I, I think that's what he came to. Initially, he was trying to find a better version than what he felt he had from Wing Chun, and that was from he had a famous fight with Wong Jack Man that he won, but it didn't go very well. And he was frustrated. He thought he should have won it very quickly. And it took a long time and was sloppy. And so he'd been for years working out with these American students who were good at other types of combat sports, as we said, like boxing and judo. And Bruce started to think about ways to create what he considered would be the ultimate martial arts style. And the three things he combined were the, the kicking from Kung Fu and the footwork and punching from boxing. But then he added a unique element that no one's ever done before. He, he added Western fencing. And his brother was a fencer and had showed him fencing. But Bruce, and then this gets back to his studies, loved reading fencing books because they were highly technical and they were all about these various sort of specific techniques. And so Jeet Kune Do was really sort of unarmed fencing. That's the way he thought about it at the time. But then after a while, uh, he philosophically began to believe that no style should be formalized. 
And so what he began to preach was that Jeet Kune Do is just a phrase. And what it means is to essentially find your own best style and that you shouldn't be attached to any one system because then you become mechanized and like a robot and fighting is a fluid thing. It's a, you're always in this moment where you're going back and forth. And if you're attached to a specific set of movements, you can be easily defeated. And so that was Bruce's ultimate message. Right. So he was the ultimate, he was the, like the grandfather of mixed martial arts. Like, just take whatever you can and make it work and for the situation. That's right. And that's where he, you, he, you see his Americanness <clears throat> as, as you said earlier, it's sort of Chinese culture was very much attached to tradition and so when you listen to a kind of traditional martial artist and you ask him what you study, he'll tell you who his master was, who his master's master was, <laughs> and what the whole lineage. And what's important is that you've kept the tradition pure. Bruce's approach was totally pragmatic. It was like, if that works, it's great. It doesn't matter if it's Korean or it's Japanese or we got it from Brazil. We don't care where it came from. All we care is that it works in a fight. And that's very much what's become the spirit of MMA, which mixed martial arts. It doesn't matter, you know, who taught you that punch or where it came from. Did it work in the fight? Did you win or did you lose? That's all we care about. So during this time, he was developing this, his new type of martial art. I mean, it's a, it's a style without a style, I think is how he described it, or a system without a system. He was working with some big karate guys here in America, like Chuck Norris. But then he got hooked up becoming a, a karate or a kung fu teacher to some big stars like Steve McQueen, we mentioned. James, was it James Coburn was the other one? Yeah, was the other big one, big disciple. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a, was, a, was, a, was a student of his. How did that change Bruce's career? Because I imagine like being with these guys gave him the, more of an itch, more of a desire to become a big movie star. Yeah, so when the, the Green Hornet got canceled after one season, he was in L.A. with a wife and a young son, and he couldn't pay the rent. And he needed to figure a way to do that. And what he had learned early on from his experiments with becoming a kung fu instructor is that teaching kung fu is a hard business. Because most of the students don't have that much money. There weren't that many people who were interested in Asian martial arts at the time, so you couldn't get a lot of students. And so <clears throat> he realized... The way he could do this and survive was to teach private lessons to celebrities for an extraordinary amount of money. So he had these celebrity students paying him the equivalent of about $800 an hour for private kung fu or what Jeet, at that time, Jeet Kune Do lessons with Bruce Lee. And he had two goals in doing it. One was just purely monetary. Um, these lessons allowed him to support his family. But the second goal was to learn from them how they had become a star and also to use those relationships to advance his own acting career. And I think it's crucial to understanding Bruce's success later to know that he was essentially a disciple of Steve McQueen and James Coburn at the same time he was also their teacher. Like he was, he was learning from them as much as they were learning from him. And he was learning how do you make it in Hollywood how do you be a star? How do you conduct yourself? How do you dress? How, what kind of car do you drive? How do you interact with the directors? And so he, he and in many ways, he went to sort of film school <laughs> um, through these private lessons. Yeah. The lesson was from Steve McQueen, just be cool. Got to be cool. That's man. right. <laughs> That's Which right. Is- and he learned how to be, be cool from Steve McQueen, like how to dress, how to conduct himself, how to interact with women. And when he got back to Hong Kong, the people were like, oh, we've never seen anything like this. And that's because he had spent uh, several years at Steve McQueen's feet going like, how does this guy do this? Man, yeah, I want to be cool like Steve McQueen. Everyone wants to be yeah. cool like Steve McQueen. All right, so that's interesting. So he, he's in America, like, but his career, like, he didn't become a star in America. He had to go right. back to Hong Kong. Like, wh- how did that happen? I mean, you'd think he came to America that he'd be done with Hong Kong, but why do you end up in Hong Kong and... Why was that the thing that made him catapult him to worldwide fame? So after the uh, Cato, sorry, the Green Hornet, which in, in which he played Cato, was canceled, he was extremely frustrated because for the next four years, all he could get was like one bit part every eight months on some terrible TV show. So he played like the karate instructor on some terrible sitcom, or he had a bit part in a 
crappy Western. And those, A, weren't paying the bills, but B, weren't advancing his career. He was actually, he had moved backwards. Uh, and so what little fame he had gained playing Cato was quickly dissipating to the point where no one knew who he was outside the industry. And he was extraordinarily frustrated. And he was given an opportunity to go back to Hong Kong and make a movie. And the reason why that happened was the American studios released the Green Hornet in Hong Kong. And they renamed it the Cato Show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so Bruce was the star of the show in Hong Kong because he was a hometown boy who had gone off to the Hollywood, which was like the magical kingdom, and succeeded as far as they could tell. They had no idea that he couldn't pay his mortgage and he was struggling. All they saw was, my God, one of us had actually gotten on an American TV show, which in 1960s never happened. You know, it was like if you were from Botswana, and you were the one kid who succeeded everyone in Botswana would be like, my God, we've, we've made it. We're in Hollywood. And so Bruce was that guy. So they offered him a chance to be in uh, a really low budget uh, Kung Fu movie. And Bruce wasn't certain he should do this because he thought the movie probably would be terrible. No one would see it and it wouldn't advance his career at all, but he needed the money. He had bought a fancy house in Bel Air and he couldn't afford the mortgage. And so he went to Hong Kong purely for the cash. And then, remarkably, the movie he made, called The Big Boss, became the biggest box office sensation in Southeast Asian history. And Bruce immediately overnight became bigger than The Beatles, the biggest star anyone had ever seen. And that completely transformed his career trajectory. When did uh, those films start crossing over to America? So those films weren't released in, in to America until almost right like a few months before he died in 1973. So what's interesting about Bruce is his, his fame outside of Southeast Asia, where he was huge, was entirely posthumous because outside of Southeast Asia, no one really knew who he was. And so The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, the three Hong Kong movies he made, and then Enter the Dragon, which was his Hong Kong Hollywood co-production were all released in 1973. And I mean, how did these, these films change cinema, not only in Hong Kong and America, I mean, what was different about these movies that made them so huge? Well, one factor obviously is that it had Bruce Lee and Bruce Lee, you know, when you watch his earlier performances, you can see the talent, but he's not quite a star yet. And it's that undefinable thing. But By the time he's in The Big Boss, you just can't take your eyes off of him. He's absolutely magnetic. And so these were the first movies in which you saw a genius at work. The the second factor was nobody in the West had ever watched a Hong Kong movie outside of Chinatown. So there were like three white guys who would go to Chinatown and watch it, and then the Chinese community would watch them, but no one else did. And I, I compare the Hong Kong film industry in the 19, early 1970s to the Nigerian one today, which was very popular within that geographic area amongst that community, but no exposure out, outside of it. And so his movies transformed the world because they introduced the Western culture to what was going on in Chinese cinema. And as you said, these movies didn't become really popular until after he died, but they had a lasting impact on American cinema because you know, martial arts movie became a, became, became a thing. And a lot of the stuntmen that worked with Bruce Lee went on to make a lot of popular, you know, crossover, you know, they started, they were filmed in Hong Kong, but they aired in America. I mean, Jackie Chan is a great example of that Chuck Norris trained with Bruce Lee, you know, guy was Walker, Texas Ranger. And, uh, so, and, but I, I, the best Chuck Norris movie was, was sidekicks though. I gotta say, you like sidekicks? I like, of course. I, I, I'm a lone wolf McQuaid guy, <laughs> but uh, I'll give you sidekicks, <laughs> right? But say, like, it, it changed American cinema. Like that became a genre in America after Bruce Lee. It changed American cinema, I think, in several fundamental ways. One, it brought all this Asian talent over, and so you mentioned Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan was a stunt boy on two of Bruce's films. You can see him for like a fraction of a second and Enter the Dragon when Bruce snaps his neck. And so Jackie learned at Bruce's feet. And after Bruce died, they tried to make Jackie the next Bruce Lee. And then he realized it would work better if he played a kind of comedic clown role. 
Chuck Norris as well. So all of this talent that came after Bruce, Bruce introduced to the world through his movies, it introduced an entirely new genre to the West. You know, karate, uh, kung fu movies were big in China, but no one had seen them in the West. And so suddenly we had this genre that you later see with The Matrix or Kill Bill or John Wick is a great example of a kind of modern kung fu classic. Uh, but the third way I think is crucial is it totally changed fight choreography. So if you go back and you watch sort of 1960s Star Trek, you can see Captain Kirk throwing this bolo haymaker John Wayne punch out of right field, missing the guy by three feet, and the guy collapses. And that was considered acceptable fight choreography. You know, you can't watch a show today where it's an action hero. He's not a martial arts master. You know, Tom Cruise is kicking and punching and doing jujitsu moves. Batman, Christopher Nolan's Batman is like, you know, this kung fu master. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, that recent movie, the guy with this, Sherlock oh, Holmes yeah. is a kung fu master. So every, uh, it completely changed action cinema in the West. And, and that was, I think, probably the deepest impact Hong Kong films and Bruce Lee had. And, and besides impacting America's cinema, Bruce Lee, through his movies, impacted American culture uh, you know, as you said, in the 60s, no one knew hardly anything about Asian martial arts. You know, if you said Kung Fu, they're like, Kung what? What is that? But because of Bruce Lee, like now there's, you know, dojos in pretty much every single town in America. That's right. And uh, that's why I, I was shocked that there wasn't a good biography about Bruce Lee. And I think that's because his image is just this Kung Fu movie guy who made a couple low budget films. But if you think about it, he completely transformed American culture. All these parents uh, in the suburbs whose six-year-old sons are learning Taekwondo are only doing that because of Bruce Lee. No one was doing that back in 1961. It, the Kung Fu craze is totally a result of the popularity of Bruce Lee and his films. And afterwards, millions and millions of young Westerners, like myself, took up the martial arts and so it spread all these dojos in every small town. There's this um, uh, a quote in the book from Fred Weintraub, who produced Enter the Dragon. And he said, you know, before Bruce Lee, every small town had a, a barber shop and a beauty parlor. And after Bruce Lee, it also had a karate studio with a poster of Bruce Lee on the wall. And so all of these kind of strip mall dojos that you see today are part of Bruce Lee's contribution to the world. And What's interesting about him personally is that was his goal. It wasn't an accident. He, he set out like a missionary to use the medium of film in order to spread Asian culture to the West. And so he really, his impact was uh, self-conscious and incredible. And that's why I think he's an important cultural figure and not just a celebrity. So there's a lot more we could dig into. We talk about his family life, which was complex Yes. <laughs> so, well, then we get, there's also his death, you know, like, you know, Bruce Lee he died a young man. He was only 32. And because he died young, like a lot of people who die young, there's a lot of legends around his death. Like, you know, he's basically kind of like Tupac or Elvis. You know, some people think that he's still uh -huh. alive. But you, it looks like you've uncovered how Bruce Lee really died. Uh, so we'll, we'll let people buy the book to find that out. But before we end, I'm, I'm curious, after writing, I mean, this is a big tome of a book. Like, were there any life lessons you took away uh, after researching and writing about Bruce Lee? You know, it's interesting because Bruce Lee influenced my early life. It got me into martial arts. I wanted to be like Bruce Lee physically. But as I was working on the book, I, I, he influenced me on a kind of uh, emotional level, I would say. And very specifically, this book took seven years to write. It was incredibly hard to do. It was only supposed to take uh, 18 months or two years. And so the advance money ran out. <laughs> I was like living on, you know, paycheck to paycheck, just trying to survive. You're like Bruce, you're like Bruce Lee. Exactly. I was, I, and I was, so I'm writing about Bruce Lee starving in Hollywood and I'm starving here trying to write the book about Bruce Lee starving in Hollywood. And the way it inspired me was that you should never give up. If you've got some, a dream and a thing that you really love, and this is cliched, but Bruce Lee proves that the impossible is possible if you're willing to pay the ultimate price. He did something 
by becoming the first Chinese American male actor to ever star in a Hollywood movie that no one had ever done before. And no one at the time, even his closest friends thought he could do. And the only reason he achieved that is because he would not quit. And when they told him, no, he just got angrier and kept at it. And for me, that was the, that was the lesson I held on to, which was when I thought I couldn't finish this and it wasn't going to work. I just kept at it. Cause I was like, if Bruce Lee can become uh, the first star, I can finish this biography. And I think that's a lesson we can all hold to our hearts when times are tough. Did you write an affirmation like Bruce Lee did? We didn't talk about that. I thought that was interesting too. <laughs> no, we didn't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so his, aff- his affirmation, he, he did a lot of self-help stuff from Napoleon Hill. And his affirmation was, you know, I'm going to be the biggest, he used the term oriental superstar uh, that the world has ever seen and make $10 million and, and just over the top sort of affirmation. So no, I didn't do that affirmation, but uh, I, I, I kept it in my heart that right. I wasn't going to quit on Bruce Lee because he wouldn't have given up. That's right. Well, Matthew, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Brett. This was a lot of fun. My guest today was Matthew Pauly. He's the author of the book, Bruce Lee, A Life. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out his website, mattpauly.com for more information about his work. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Bruce Lee, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.